So um, without further ado, so I'm, I'm really um, happy to introduce our speaker for today. So this is Dr. Steve Reynolds. Um, Dr. Reynolds is an associate professor in biophysiology and kinesiology, as well as a clinical assistant professor. Um, he's up in Canada at University of uh, British Columbia. Um, I was reading a lot of his work on diaphragmatic pacing and some of the effects <clears throat> of the diaphragm on uh, respiratory mechanics and, and also on uh, uh, neurological status, and I became interested in his work, and so I invited him here to share some of his work with us. So it looks like uh, the title of his talk for today is Diaphragm Pacing, A Breath of Fresh Air. Dr. Reynolds, thank you for being here. I look forward to this talk. Thanks, Andrea. Um, so, uh, you know, I first have to apologize. I, I'll try not to put folks to, to sleep because when researchers like to talk about their 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 own bit, they they tend to spin off into into nerddom. So I'll talk. I'll I'll try to relate this back actually at the end too to where um, what I've learned through this as a clinician and and how I applied it, particularly during COVID. I think it's really changed my my pattern of practice that way. So um, I, I have to be very explicit about my disclosures. So I'm um, I'm pretty biased because I was initially around, I'm on the initial phrenic nerve um, central line lung pacing patents. Um, I was around when one of the companies that's doing a lot of the work on it, Lung Pacer, I helped set them up. Um, and I still get some research support from them and have some equity. So uh, I am biased. Um, how I try to mitigate that is uh, is through doing, uh, be open with the science. So all the stuff that you'll see today um, has been published in peer-reviewed journals. A uh, fair amount in the Blue Journal, um, and has been exposed to sort of rigorous uh, external criticism. And um, we have some ongoing work as well. That again, everything is open that I do to try to make sure that um, that people have exposure to that. And for any trainees in the audience, if you don't see somebody put up a disclosure slide, you have to assume they're biased. So, uh, so just make sure you demand that of all your presenters. Um, in terms of the presentation overview, so I, I won't go through all this stuff, but I'll give you a little bit of uh, stuff around negative pressure ventilation and Bibi and uh, Billy and, uh, and Vid. So I, I imagine folks know a, a fair amount of that because I'm speaking to folks that are experts in this area. I'll talk to you a little bit about what negative pressure ventilation is and why do we bother using it and what other alternatives are out there. And then I'll talk about my study specifically in reference to Vid, Billy, and Bibi. So ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction ventilator-induced lung injury, and ventilator-induced uh, brain injury. Uh, I'll talk very briefly about the translational implications, but only stuff that's been published. Um, and then uh, I'll talk to you about what I've sort of learned in terms of, of this stuff and, and how it's changed me to really look at transpulmonary driving pressure, particularly with COVID patients who have very fragile lungs. So we all know, um, this is, uh, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the converted here that the mechanical ventilator is a double-edged sword, right? So it's it's amazing. It's the basis of, of our jobs in many ways. And Bjorn Ibsen, back during the polio epidemic, really was the has, has been viewed, viewed as the found, one of the founding members of our field. And um, but uh, but it causes injury, right? So we we know it causes ventilator-induced lung injury, ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction, which is in, which was more recently identified, and and likely, um, you know, I, I have it here: ventilator-induced brain injury probably ventilator-associated brain injury where we're at in terms of the, the level of um, a level of evidence. But there is some good stuff, and I, I, I sort of believe that the, the ventilator does um, is associated with, with uh, neural dysfunction and brain injury. So I won't go through it too much because this isn't a talk to, to, to get you on it, but just as a reminder of adelect trauma being a significant driver of, of ventilator-induced lung injury. And I love to see, you know, this is one of my favorite uh, slides around this because it sits it in my head. So at end expiration, we have 
we have end expiration here where the lungs are collapsed in atelectatic areas and then end inspiration there's some of the alveoli that that open back up and they get shear stress and then we have in the non-atelectatic lung we have areas now that uh, because you're blowing in the same potentially tidal volume you have areas that are compliant that get over distended and they get injured as well so atelectrauma is a, is a super bad thing we know that um, it drives lung injury and increases stress and strain in the lungs in adjacent areas by up to fourfold. Um, and we know that it also can drive other injuries like biotrauma. So having um, inflammatory mediators that are reduced are released into the circulation, which then cycle back and cause injury to the lung again. This, you know, this isn't rocket science in terms of where we're at now. Uh, we talk all about open lung ventilation. We're very excited about that. And that's really the basis of a lot of the way we ventilate people. Um, and just to remind folks is that we, before the whole ArtsNet ventilation stuff, we would, um, there was uh, uh, folks who would get higher tidal volumes, so they would have uh, collapse and atelectasis, and then they would over distension of the alveoli, whereas now we try to use lower tidal volumes, 48 mils is really what we look at, and keep the, the alveoli open with peak. So that was, that was just quickly talking about uh, Billy. VID, so ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction, was really catalyzed by Sandy Levine's study in 2008 that looked at brain-dead donors versus folks undergoing thoracic surgery and found that after 18 to 69 hours of mechanical ventilation, there was an over 50% reduction in diaphragm muscle fiber area. So pretty cool stuff, uh, pretty interesting. There are some confounding things uh, with this study, specifically that these were brain-dead donors, and there's a whole bunch of neurophysiological stuff that happens in that but still was probably quite compelling with when taking it into conjunction with the other evidence that was coming in the field uh, around that. We know that diaphragm weakness and dysfunction is common. Uh, Martin, from uh, who's a, a great researcher in uh, Paris, uh, published this article looking at the prevalence of uh, associated diaphragm weakness and dysfunction in terms of both admission at admission, during weaning, and uh, during prolonged mechanical ventilation. So it is quite common, um, and it's important. Uh, Ewan Gallagher from Toronto published um, um, this study looking at uh, there's a little bit of a Goldilocks in terms of thickness of your diaphragm. Um, if your, your diaphragm gets thin, uh, you definitely are less likely to get off the ventilator. And if you're, as your diaphragm over here gets thicker, um, you're less likely to get off the ventilator. So probably a bunch of different reasons for that, but, um, but thicker diaphragm may represent injury and edema and is not a great thing either. So, so it's important and it is associated with dysfunction um, and failure to liberate from mechanical ventilation and poor outcomes. So the next one, which is a little bit more controversial, but just setting the background of some of the work is ventilator associated or induced brain injury. Um, we, uh, uh, Diego Bassi from my lab, um, we published this uh, review, systematic review in critical care um, that there's both clinical and preclinical um, associations. And one of the cautions I have to say, even when I talk about a ventilator-induced or associated brain injury, you really have to think about ventilator, uh, immobility, and sedation, because they're never, they're, they're very difficult to tease apart, at least in the literature that we have at present. And I'll, I'll show you some evidence that I think we can start to tease it apart, but it's those three correlate, right, uh, in this. So, so uh, just a little caution in that. But we know that two days of mechanical ventilation is associated with a tenfold risk of, of cognitive, acute cognitive dysfunction. And those patients that have acute cognitive dysfunction are nine times uh, more likely to develop long-term cognitive impairment. So 
probably has to do with some pre-morbid and pre-existing things, but it's a pretty strong um, association. And then in preclinical studies, there have been multiple different studies. I won't go through in interest of time, um, but have demonstrated the relation, relationship between mechanical injury and brain dysfunction. So we know in this that there's both, as I said, preclinical literature and clinical literature um, and why this will get to be a little bit why we chose the hippocampus as our target, because um, the brain's a pretty big and complex thing. Um, we chose the brain as, as we know it's part of the respiratory, the neurorespiratory loop. Um, the hippocampus, we know if you stimulate it in uh, the preclinical literature, you'll stop the breathing cycle. We know that there's hippocampal apoptosis from fantastic work from Gonzalez and Lopez, um, apoptosis after high tidal volume ventilation. Um, and there's also hippocampal activity that, that varies with um, tidal volume um, activity, again, by Gonzalez-Lopez, great stuff. Um, and in the clinical literature, we also know that hippocampal stimulation does stop the breathing cycle. So same thing as the preclinical. And there's some stuff that around hippocampal tumors and epilepsy uh, causing some uh, causing apnea that way. So the hippocampus is involved in this neural uh, loop of, of respiration. And it's an important spot to go after and has previously been looked at at least with some, um, by some folks. So, so that's, you'll get on, we'll talk a little bit more about why we did that, but maybe before we go get on to, a, to our experiment, um, uh, it's important just to talk about negative and positive pressure ventilation and why we use it. And it's, it's a bit, um, you know, I just want to be explicit about what we do and how we do things, right? So we breathe through negative pressure ventilation. And I think we all know this. And the diaphragm is our biggest muscle of, that does, well, the most important muscle of respiration, does about 70% of the work of breathing during normal resp respiration. The diaphragm drops down, we create a negative pressure gradient, air comes in, yay for everybody, we breathe. Now, um, we know that mechanical ventilator is a positive pressure mechanism, right? We blow air in. We know that it's not rocket science. We know that it's been proven that there is an inhomogeneous distribution of ventilation during positive pressure ventilation, which favors the apices. So we get more tidal volume that goes to the apices. And it also uh, is goes to the um, more to the ventral than the dorsal area. So you breathe more to the front and the top in terms of the, the positive pressure ventilation. Um, historically, what we've done, and, and I think, and I still agree with this through all of my work, is that the best way to minimize atelectasis to prevent uh, ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction and, and to minimize ventilator-associated brain injury is to wake patients up and have them breathe. That's the best case scenario. We want to get them going. We want to get them breathing. We want to get people to a more normal physiological distribution of ventilation uh, and get those muscles working. Now, that being said, there are times when we can't do this. Um, we can't actually provide uh, we can't actually have somebody breathing because of their various injuries, whether they have a severe traumatic head injury or whether they're profoundly hypoxic uh, with COVID and they need to have to be absolutely synchronous with their ventilator. Um, there was some evidence uh, early on, so this is in 2008 and out of um, uh, Brian Kavanaugh's lab, uh, looking at a negative pressure ventilation in rabbits. So these poor rabbits had, were given ARDS and then they were put into this tiny plexiglass box for rabbits. Um, and they showed an increase in their PAFO2 ratio as compared to just blowing in air alone, which is sort of cool. Um, and uh, Hedden Stirnup, a fantastic researcher, uh, uh, also did some work in 1994, as early as 1994, 
uh, when folks were going uh, under intra-abdominal surgery, uh, and he uh, paced the left phrenic nerve, so stimulated the left phrenic nerve, and was able to show that the patients, again, had reduced atelectasis postoperatively um, and better gas exchange. So super cool. This is not new stuff, right? Um, so how can we provide this negative pressure ventilation? Like, sounds pretty good. It's at least there's some, some initial benefit and people are looking at it. So there's, uh, Ray Honors does this a lot, um, is really the world leader in this, um, putting in uh, phrenic nerve uh, pacing cuffs in people who are, uh, who have high spinal cord injuries. And this is, you know, it's, it's very cool. It, we know it gets people off of um, uh, permanent ventilation and improves, improves their quality of life. But it's pretty intense, right? You got to do the surgery and you got to put these nerve cuffs um, put on the nerves and, and have a radio frequency basically respirator sending a signal through. So neat stuff, um, uh, but, but not really appropriate for the ICU population. Point is, uh, looking at Yoshida published this work relatively recently, looking at the CNAP or CNAP. So basically, you can see on the, the right side of the, the screen here. Uh, the, there, they did work with a pig where they had a negative pressure sucking the tummy out. So they sucked the, the abdomen out. They provided negative abdominal pressure and that improved their gas exchange again. They provided some degree of, um, of, of peep through the CNAP and better gas exchange. So sort of cool having this, this abdominal um, uh, negative pressure mechanism. I also like uh, Romandos in Germany uh, had done some neat with the plexiglass lungs. So if you, if you remember before, I, I referred back to uh, mechanical ventilation being Bjorn um, Ibsen really being the start of the ICU. Well, even before that, we had these iron lungs, um, these negative pressure tanks that would suck the lungs out and, again, have air blown in. You had to be awake and you had to be able to clear your secretions, and it was really tough to provide nursing. But, you know, nonetheless, that was how people could be ventilated. Um, and uh, so Romanos has done that work with ARDS, uh, in, a, in a series of patients, I think you had over 100, where they were in these plexiglass lungs and plexiglass boxes. So not the iron lung anymore, the plexiglass lung. Um, and they showed improved gas exchange for these ARDS folks. But similarly, had a very challenging mechanism to, of, uh, of nursing, and you can imagine trying to get access to these patients is a bit of a challenge. So why, what is phrenic nerve pacing, and how does this try to do this type of, um, of process? So... Uh, Phrenic nerve pacing, uh, transvascular phrenic nerve pacing is basically a central line here that is, that is introduced into the left jugular or left subclavian. It could be both or either, um, which is a central line that just looks like a regular central line that has embedded electrodes during the, the length of the central line. And it takes advantage of the fact that the phrenic nerve here goes, if we all remember that, that thing from med school, C345 keeps the diaphragm alive. Well, it's the phrenic nerve that goes down and travels down here, and you can, uh, it travels right by the subclavian, and it tra usually travels on the lateral aspect of the SVC here. So now what you have is you have an ability to send a pulse transvascularly by this central line, essentially with electrodes in it, that can stimulate the phrenic nerve as it goes down to the diaphragm. So, um, and the interesting thing is, is that you can reliably capture the phrenic nerve this way. Um, you, uh, the reason and how it's sort of set up is you have a whole bunch of different electrodes and different, um, and different uh, combinations, and you can cycle through those combinations of electrodes to send this pulse across the vessel wall um, to get to, the, to, to, to activate the phrenic nerve. So um, 
And then you, and then the other aspect of the central line, which is sort of good, is just a regular central line has three lumens and all the rest of it. So, um, and it's attached. What you don't see here is attached to a control unit in various ways that can interact with the ventilator, either with an inline uh, pressure flow sensor or even eavesdropping on some of the the ventilator's um, uh, electrical signals to to be able to be synchronous. So, um, I'll go through a little bit of the the, the data we have to date. Um, what I'm going to tell you about is this, the stuff that we've done most recently, uh, but we have uh, we've done this for a while now. So this is the experimental setup of a lot of my of a lot of my experiments. So um, we have a large animal, which is usually about 50, 50 or 60 kilos. When I first started this work, I was not a, a pig expert by any by any means, but I can I am now a pig intensivist. I think I can honestly say. Um, which is a dubious honor. Uh, so we keep pigs uh, alive on the ventilator in a mock ICU environment for 50 hours. Uh, and what I will not tell you about because it's just in publication uh, being submitted, and if you're going to be at ATS, you'll see the results of our next experiment, which is uh, a lung injury experiment for 12 hours, but I can't take the thunder of my, uh, my PhD students um, at this conversation, but you'll, you can see it there. We have six posters in there and we have papers in submission for the results of that. Um, but for this, we have, so 50 hours, we took normal lungs, um, the, the animals were intubated and sedated in this ICU conditions, and they had better monitoring, um, sadly, than I do with my uh, human patients. They had BIS monitors, which is like a, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with it, it's a two-channel EEG to look at sedation depths, because we wanted to make sure that the, the pigs were deeply sedated. Um, they had, um, they were ventilated, uh, with uh, a PEEP of five and eight mils per kilogram and FiO2 25 to 30%. And with, we targeted normal uh, ABGs. They had a, um, one of these pacing central lines placed that was connected to a, a control unit uh, that had an airflow sensor in line. We also put on, um, we had electrical impedance tomography on them. So I know folks may not be familiar with that, but the way to think about it is it's a, a single plane um, almost uh, think about it as a, a single plane dynamic CT scan that you can compare breath to breath. Um, it's pretty cool um, to do. It's practically its use. I, I have one in my ICU. We don't use it that often just because it doesn't provide a ton more information than I can get otherwise. But with this, you'll see there are some really pretty pictures uh, and some understanding about what's going on. And then we had also a PICO cardiac monitoring system, which uh, can give you cardiac output, but can actually give you sort of, which is cool extravascular lung water, um, because that was one of the, the issues that we were a bit concerned about is if you had negative pressure ventilation, are you going to be sucking fluid into the alveoli um, after people are ventilated for a while, or people, animals? Um, so we, in terms of the groups, we had a never ventilated to true control. Uh, we had a mechanically ventilated, but only with protective lung ventilation. We had a mechanically ventilated and paste. This is I always get the TDTN wrong, but the, we'll call it PACE for now. Uh, transcutaneous, transvascular, diaphragm, neurostimulation. Um, so 50% of the time, so that's on every other breath. And then we provided pacing on every breath. So the way to think about it is that the ventilator is blowing the air in, and at the same time, the diaphragm is activating, pulling air in. So these, this was pacing in conjunction with mechanical ventilation. To, uh, to do 20 to 30% of the total, or 15 to 20% of the pressure to time product, product which uh, is analogous to the, the total worker breathing. So I'll tell you a little bit about the results from this. So the first thing is, is 
we're our groups the same, right? So, you know, as everybody goes into their science stuff, you don't want to see a systematic difference between the groups. And this is a summary slide you see, and I'll talk a little bit about weight in the next slide, but our weight was a little different, but our length to weight was not. Midazolam, fentanyl, propofol, ketamine, fluid balance, pH, PCO2, PAO2, and bicarb was all the same. Well, or it was not significantly different. I'll be cautious to say that. Um, the, uh, the aspects here is one of the, the small things of being a pig intensivist is man animals take a ton, a ton of sedation to actually get them to ablate their respiratory drive. And I'm sure I'm on some illicit drug list somewhere in the, for the Canadian government for how much medications that I order in for these poor animals to, to keep them asleep. In terms of the uh, animal weight by group, uh, we did have a challenge here. So when we did see that there was a significant difference in our mechanically ventilated and um, paced 100% group. So this one right here. The reason why was, um, was we still did this research during the COVID pandemic. Um, we were crazy enough to do that. Uh, so sadly, we had uh, a delay in initiation uh, and pigs, their job is to eat and grow. And even a, a week to two week delay that we had in this group meant that these animals grew and they grew a lot. So our, our length, but what's relevant as the same thing with everything in people is the, the length to weight ratio was not significantly different. So we did just flagging that for you, sadly. Here's the difference with uh, all of the medications in terms of fentanyl, midazolam, and ketamine, um, but they were not statistically different. Fluid balance was not statistically different, but you do see a, um, a trend, at least for the 100% pace group, to be lower. Um, we had a standard way of, of uh, administering fluid, so fluid was only given when urine output dropped a significant amount um, below its one to two mils per kilo and was given in a very judicious amount because we did not want to um, confound our results that way. So um, in terms of the results, so could the first question is, is were we able to deliver uh, the stimulus that we said? And, and so we've already done this similar work. It's an extension of our work that I published in 2017 in the Blue Journal. Um, but what you see here is there is a paste um, breath, so the flow, this is a, uh, the pace is delivered here. This is the, the pressure of the airway, the flow, and the volume. So volume is the same between paced and unpaced breaths. That makes sense because the ventilator is delivering the volume. The flow is essentially the same between the paced and the unpaced breaths. But what you see is the, the airway pressure, the, um, uh, that there's a scooping pattern because right at the beginning, the ventilator blows the air in, then the diaphragm is paced or activated, stimulation is delivered, the diaphragm then activates and we release it um, before the end of the positive pressure ventilation in terms of the flow. And then it, it you can, so that's why you see a little bit of a scalloping there. This is a the 50% uh, pacing group, so alternating uh, pace stimulations, just so you can see the, the difference between the two there. As I said, this was a, an extension. We, we proved that we could do this in animals in 2017. Um, and we did this in those folks, we, in those animals, we really only paced on every other breath. Um, uh, and uh, we didn't look at, uh, didn't have as much uh, information on the lungs, and we didn't look at the brain in that folks. This is results from that work, just to contextualize this. So this is the never ventilated or the true control group. This is mechanically ventilated um, uh, and a never paced group, okay? And this is the paced group. So you can see that we're trying to, I was trying to do this to sort of copy Sandy's stuff from the New England, 
but because he has a really pretty picture that way with the uh, with these guys that it's a cross-sectional cut through the muscle fiber area and so you can see that um, maybe you have a little bit of the eye of faith here but you can see that these muscle fibers at the same um, the same magnification are atrophied and smaller and these are um, bigger and now the histogram really shows you the story here this is the cross-sectional area of the diaphragm muscle fibers uh, and, and the, the way to look at this is right left and then both, both together uh, and you can see that the control and then you atrophy after 50 hours of ventilation here significantly significantly different whereas the paste folks or the paste animals sorry joys are trying to be professional from working from home uh, okay, so getting onto that fact, you can see that the paste, they look much more similar in terms of preservation of their cross-sectional area there. Um, in the diaphragm stuff, you'll see this as we get to it. Um, you can see that there is a, uh, this is a, the dotted line, okay, is our control group. So this is a normal distribution and frequency of your cross-sectional areas here, okay. What we see in our the, the red one is the is the never paste, and you can see there's a distribution, a shift to the smaller cross-sectional fiber areas, and sort of blunted, and then moved to the side. And so this led us on to work to try to see are we changing the muscle fiber types? Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But if you fix this part in your brain, it'll help to explain why we did some what some of the results are from our. Uh, from our diaphragm samples in our subsequent study. So just to remind people, right, the type one fibers are your Energizer Bunny. I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age here by having the Energizer Bunny, but these are the, the type one muscle fibers are your endurance fibers, right? These are the ones that go on and on and on. And you can imagine that if your type one muscle fibers were set for those to never fail in our diaphragm. Diaphragm is a constant duty cycle muscle. If your type one fails, you die. So um, you can imagine we have a ton of, uh, of, of uh, cardiac output that goes to our diaphragm up to 30% when we're really working it, um, and we're really, really important. And in fact, as just as a, one of the, my clinical observations is, is if we work people too hard and their type 1 muscle fibers are failing, we can see them develop sepsis-like syndromes. They're really just profoundly shocky and sick. Type 2s are, this is the old Lou Ferrigno uh, Hulk picture, so this is your strength muscle fibers, right? Um, a, they're A, B, and X. They all have different slight uh, categories uh, in terms of how they actually function. Uh, but the idea there is this is the one that you, you know, if you're, if you're panting, you're sprinting, you're coughing, um, they're very important to be able to have that. And in this, I would flag that it's important to have both, right? You, um, you, if you get somebody extubated because they can now breathe on their own, but they can't cough, or they can't uh, respond rapidly to some type of respiratory challenge, then they're gonna fail, right? They fail for pulmonary toilet and they get reintubated. So this is of specific relevance as we go into our results around the, the ventilator induced diaphragm dysfunction, because we know that, that, that electrical stimulation of a muscle, depending on the frequency that you apply, can change the phenotypic expression of the muscle fiber. So a type one can turn to a type two, a type two can turn to a type one, and you can change the muscle distribution. Now, this is very important clinically because if we were doing that with our, our mild fiber subclass proportions, we could be in real trouble, right? We could basically make people, uh, make our animals or, and, and ultimately people um, just as strong, but if we shift their muscle fibers, we're actually setting them up to failure over long term. Um, so you can see here that we took, we took a whole bunch of biopsies of the diaphragm, and in this, 
We have type 1, the endurance, type 2, and type 2A and 2X. Interestingly, animals, pigs don't have type 2B uh, muscle fibers in their diaphragm, um, but they do have it in their quadricep muscle. That's another finding we've had. But in here, you can see that this is the distribution. So um, there's a, a me mechanical ventilation only, mechanical ventilation, um, uh, and paste. This is a 50% one. Sorry, it doesn't show very well. This is a never ventilated, never paced. Okay. And this is a mechanical ventilation and paste at, a, at 100%. And so we have type 1, 2, and X. And really what we're trying to show you here is that through all of these, you can see the 41, 42, 43, 40, through all these, the distribution of the muscle fibers does not significantly change. And I would say this is a, that's a Yahoo finding for us because we weren't setting our, our folks up for failure. So that's the diaphragm. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the effects on the lung. So ventilator-induced lung injury type stuff. And as I said, I'm now become, I became a, a pig lung expert through this. But you can see here that on the left side, this is a picture of our paced animal, uh, and this is uh, a picture of our not paced animal. So you can, this part here is atelectatic portions, right? So it's the collapsed portions, and this is a nice, healthy, uh, inflated lung, pig uh, and alveoli. We actually found, just as an aside, when we stuck our, our lungs in our, um, our formaldehyde, uh, that, they, uh, that we knew we could get a sense of, of what their FRC would be, how much they floated and how much atelectasis they had. So first thing I'm going to tell you is the distribution of mechanical ventilation. I'll spend a little bit of time on this slide uh, because it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important one to talk about. So uh, we know what we saw here was in the, the animal, so this is the never ventilated animal, in the dorsal aspect and the ventral. So maybe I'll start even by showing you. This is what an EIT picture shows you. Okay, so it's like a CT scan here, but what it shows also is it can show you the gain versus the loss of the volume, type volume, um, over time by the breath. So you can see blue is gain, red is loss. So the blue here is you can see that there's gain, and this is in the paste group in the uh, dorsal area into the back. Okay, so they have, they actually, um, they gain some, some, some uh, ventilation from that perspective. So here you go. So we have in the, in the never ventilated group, okay, what we see is we see that there's a, um, uh, they have, you breathe more into the back, more into the dorsum here. This is the distribution of ventilation. And then this is the, and you breathe less sort of uh, into the ventral area. When you're mechanically ventilated, that gets flipped. Okay, so you can see now you breathe more into the ventral area, less into the dorsum. Uh, and so you've actually flipped your, your process here. And this, this is an interesting finding. I'd love to say that we are the people to say that we found it, but it's not. Um, this has been previously previously reported. So, but cool that we replicated that. Now, what we see is this is a, a this is the same animal, and these are animals paced 50% of the time. So we don't I'm not I'm not presenting to you 100% pacing data, but we can we're we're showing you on an active and passive breath in the 50%. Okay. What you see is on the I'll first show you on the active breath, the paced breath on the side here. So in the dorsum and the ventral areas, it's almost equal. And that this is maintained whether the animal is on a paced breath or not paced breath. So this just reflects that in all likelihood that the lungs were open. I'm gonna also flag here that the work that I'm doing, so the work that on the diaphragm stuff, that was from uh, my PhD student, uh, Carl Fernandez. Uh, and this work uh, 
my student Liz Rohr has led. This is uh, published in the Journal of Applied Physiology last year. So what I'm showing to you here too is uh, the PAFAO2 ratios over time. So this is a functional aspect that's, that's important um, for you to see. Um, and this is where we start to see some interesting stuff when we're looking at um, the difference between the 50% pacing and the 100% pacing group. So here you got, this is your over the course of the 50 hour experiment. What you see is you see that uh, the pacing stuff, you, you see both the mechanical ventilation only, which is the, the black squares, and I'm red, green, colorblind, so my poor lab folks have to make sure they don't put red and green in here too many, too many times because I get, my poor little brain gets confused. But you see here on the 50% um, pace group, they're actually not that dissimilar in terms of their pattern over time. And you can see here in the dot plot, it's, you sort of see that it's a similar type of pattern, okay? So a loss of uh, uh, PAFO2 ratios over time. Here it's 22% in the mechanically ventilated only. It's 19% in your 50% pace. And now in the blue line, that's your 100% pace. And they only, there's only a 12% loss in the PAFIO2 ratio. Sort of interesting. That all being said, I would put a caution in here that these are still pretty darn good PAFIO2 ratios, right? You're not talking, you're not in the pathology range in this really, um, but these were, these were normal, normal animals, normal lungs. And this is why we moved on to do uh, experiments in injured lungs, because to be really honest, who cares if you, you save your PAFO2 ratios in good lungs, like meh, who cares about that? But um, but we do, we went on to to do some work in the uh, in the 12 hour uh, lung injured group, and maybe I'll give you a slight spoiler that it's it, the effect is maintained and even better. Um, so okay, so one of the things that that uh, I I really feel is is actually probably the most profound effect is the change in end expiratory lung volume or FRC or reduction in atelectasis over time for our animals between the three groups. So again, this is this here is a nice figure. It's the change in end expiratory lung volume from the beginning to the end of the experiment. So in the mechanically ventilated folks, you see they, they lose over a liter, okay? Uh, so basically it's an increase in atelectasis. And you can see that over time, it's a gradual loss. In your 50% paced group, okay, you still have a loss at about a liter, okay? So, and you can see here it matches as well. Whereas in the 100% paced group, so paced on every breath, you see you still lose some, it's about 600, 627, I think if I remember, um, but, it's, but it's much less and significantly less. So you have improved, um, improved uh, uh, distribution or FRC and reduced atelectasis. And that would, as you're going to see, that improves compliance and improves your driving pressure requirements. So you can see here, remember I told you blue is gain, orange is loss. So this is your mechanically ventilated only. They lose essentially, there's a whole bunch of atelectasis. In the 50% paste, there is a bunch of atelectasis in the, in the dorsal area. And the 100% paste, it's a bit spotty over time, which is a sort of a, a neat finding as well. I think this is my favorite slide of the lung stuff. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll spend a bit of time in this just to talk you through it as well. So we took biopsies of the lung from the five different, five different spots, one, two, three, four, five, okay? And so what we wanted to look at was, was the, the histological and the aeration that was happening here, okay? We know that, um, that never ventilated animals, and this is the one, two, three, four, five, right? You can see one, two, three, four, five, bottom up. 
So the never ventilated animals, they have an equal distribution of ventilation throughout the lung. And that's what we'd expect. That's normal, right? Whereas at the base of the lung, you still have the alveoli open, just a cross-sectional and these white spots, your alveoli. So nice and open, not that much atelectasis. And if you come over here and see this, this is the, the alveolar um, cord length. So what this is, is basically the expansion of the lungs, okay? And so you can see there's a normal distribution and an equal distribution across all this. This is the visualization of that. This is a cord length representation of that. Totally makes sense. Okay, that's what we'd expect to see. That's, that's not rocket science. Conversely, in mechanical ventilation, we know, remember if you throw your brain back to that figure I showed at the front, at the, at the beginning, that you have, it's not a surprise that at the bottom here, so you see one, bottom, one, that there's increased atelectasis, right? Um, and what you see as you go up is there's less, and you can see this sort of visually, less atelectasis, less, and then here, now there's probably some over distension as well, okay? This is that, and you can see that on this figure here. So uh, the alveolar cord length is smaller, there's more atelectasis, and then you go up to less and less, probably over distension. So a significant difference throughout your lungs if you're mechanically ventilated. Now you have your, um, your pacing bit, 100% pacing and the 50% pacing, and the 50% pacing sort of, you, you get a sense here just by your eyeballs, that there's more atelectasis at the base and less at the apices. And you can see that here, uh, they, they are significant um, within these groups, okay, between themselves, and so there's a difference there. But what's probably the most striking, and as we see during our FRC type of discussion or end exposure lung volume stuff, um, that there's, the, that there's a, a much more homogeneous distribution of ventilation uh, that you can see in the 100% pace group. And so this is it here, and you can see each of these that they're really quite much more similar to here. Not, not totally different uh, or not, not, not exactly homogenous, uh, but, um, but better. The last thing is, is, is the lung injury, is, was there a difference in lung injury scores in these? And remember, these are healthy lungs to begin with. And so there was no difference in lung, uh, lung injury scores. We, are, uh, we had a blinded animal pathologist look at, look at these. Um, uh, look at the histological scores, and there was no difference in lung injury between the groups. Okay, so we'll talk specifically now about pacing results on the effects of the hippocampus. And I will, um, here as I just start into these, this is the work of uh, Dr. Diego Bassi, who has, uh, this is published in, um, I think I have it, oh, it's not li listed there, sorry. So this this is published in the Blue Journal in 2021 uh, uh, from that. Uh, from that work. Okay, so this one is, we're looking at the apoptotic index. So we're looking at cell death. So it's a tunnel assay. Basically, at the end of the experiment, we chopped out the hippocampus and we stained it for uh, the, a tunnel assay, which is, which is uh, what it reflects is, the, is cell death, okay? Um, and what we see here, okay, is we see in the, in the, the mechanically ventilated animals, that there's a fair amount of cell death, right? So there's, so there's a, a fair amount of, of, of cell death that's happening in the hippocampus. At 50% pacing, that reduces. 100% pacing, that reduces. doesn't go to zero. And then in never ventilated, we don't see the same cell death. So it, it looks to be a, a dose response type curve. As you pace more, you protect the, the, um, the brain more. Now, a little bit of this is who cares, right? So, so who cares if you have a bit of cell death in your hippocampus? And it's tough to talk about the functional aspect of these things 
it's probably in the range of a concussion if you look at it or uh, in the previous animal work, um, some degree of epilepsy is similar in terms of cell death or a seizure. So yeah, concussion is what the, is sort of the degree of injury you can think about or the magnitude. So we also stand for GFAP. So GFAP is, looks at reactive astrocytes. And if you go back to your, if you're, you know, we're, we're breathing folks. I'm not sure how many people are brainy folks in, in the audience, but if you, if you go back to your med school, the, the reactive astrocytes are like the, the custodial uh, folks of the, of the brain. They go and they clean things up. So when you, when you, uh, what reactive astrocytes reflect is injury. So ongoing, that there was some injury to the brain and you got to go sweep it up. Somebody broke some glasses in the brain and they got to, they got to clean it up. So what we see here, and this is just another response to, to injury or, or aspects. So you see here that in the mechanically ventilated, not paste, there is a significant amount of reactive astrocytes cleaning up the brain injury, whereas in the 50%, 100%, and never ventilated, there's uh, much less reactive astrocytes. Interesting here that we don't really have a dose response aspect. Can't explain why that is. So microglia, it's a similar type of process. Microglia are around, they, they do get activated as well and migrate in to help, uh, help clean up uh, injury and, um, uh, and, 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 and are attracted to, to spots that have badness going on for sure. So we see here that again, we see that in our mechanically ventilated, um, there, uh, there's higher rates and then in 50%, 100% less and, and never ventilated less. So this reflects neural inflammation. Again, another, this is a, a funny one, and I just put it in just to, um, you know, science is never perfect. Um, GFAP uh, indicates astrocyte death. So it's, it's actually one of our, our most sensitive and specific markers of brain injury out there. Um, you can, uh, it, and you can see it in the serum. Uh, it's uh, part of uh, sort of neurotrauma research out there. Has, there's a whole bunch of, bu bunch of stuff on GFAP levels. Um, but what you see here is again, our mechanically ventilated animals uh, um, definitely have some uh, a presence of GFAP uh, in the serum. We see slightly less the, uh, in the mechanically ventilated and paste 50% of the time, but not significantly less, interestingly. But in the 100%, we see this real, really strong drop. Fascinating that we don't actually, in our never ventilated group, it's higher. And, um, and so we, we thought that was an interesting thing, but one of the things what we were reflecting on is we probably think that this is a function of these animals were running around their pen uh, up right up until when we um, uh, when we essentially euthanized them and took all of our samples. So these these animals are running around and bonking their heads and doing all these things. And and if you've ever worked or have exposure to pigs, um, they are can be relatively vigorous in terms of their activity. Um, so. Uh, these, interestingly, right, we, these pigs were totally sedated for 50 hours, right? They were out of it. There was no bonking of heads. There's nothing else. So these guys were, um, that's what our hypothesis is around that in terms of the, the explanation for that. So that's our three different sets of findings. Um, the next step is the lung injury series. I'd, if you're at ATS, I'd encourage you to find us there. Uh, I'll be there with Diego and Liz uh, presenting our stuff. Uh, on the lung injury series. And you can understand why, uh, I think hopefully you can understand why we're doing it is because who cares if you're projecting um, nice healthy lungs, but really you want to show is that you're projecting um, uh, injured lungs. And I think we have some really good findings on that. Translational work, uh, 
briefly, because for people are really good for animals, but doesn't do anything in people. So um, we showed that you can uh, do this in folks and people in 2017, that was published in Critical Med, um, that it, it um, can uh, actually do, uh, activate the phrenic nerve in people, which is pretty cool. And then uh, uh, Martin Dress also is, he's leading the Rescue 2 study, which is looking at, um, looking at pacing in folks who have failed mechanical ventilation uh, failed weaning from mechanical ventilation and are uh, profoundly weak. Uh, and you can see here that there's no, in the uh, smaller European study, there was no difference in days on mechanical ventilation between uh, pacing and standard of care. Slight decrease, but that was not significant. Um, uh, but there was a change in uh, uh, maximal inhibitory pressure, so in your MIPS, significant change there. Um, and the study is ongoing with the Rescue 3 trial and now in uh, the U.S. Uh, looking at uh, a larger population to, to bear out some of these issues around survival and days on mechanical ventilation. So clinical implications. So the, this is you know, the way this is now I would talk about we're in speculation domain. This is not any evidence in terms of the stuff that I've done. Um, but I do like to think about this in um, uh, in ways and all around this, I really like this paper uh, in the New England to think about when I think about ventilation. If I have people trying to get off the ventilator or what I'm trying to do, I think about it as a, a load versus capacity type of thing. So, and I'm even more simple than than putting it this way. I think of somebody trying to lift up a barbell. So the barbell, the weight of the barbell is the compliance of your respiratory system. So that. The heavier, the, the worse compliance that you have there. Um, if you have, uh, you know, if you're working against things like a heavy, uh, again, reduced compliance from an atelectasis with a with really heavy chest wall or abdominal um, distension um, uh, or other chest wall disease, you, then your respiratory load is high. So what you want to do, that's in this part of the diagram, you really want to maximize or improve your compliance as best as you can through lung recruitment, through adequate use of people. Okay, um, you want to make sure they don't have a lot of pulmonary edema because if the sponge of the lung is full of fluid, then it can't descend very well. And you want to be cautious about all the things you can do with the chest wall with rib fractures, messing around with it, or, or if they're morbidly obese and underpeak. And then the other thing is, is that what, what, what can the system do when I'm talking about lifting up the barbell? How's my bicep doing? And, you know, I've sadly, I, uh, I like to mountain bike here in, in, uh, I'm in Vancouver, I, we have great mountain biking, but I don't lift weights. I'm not a, don't have any glory muscles. So my, my biceps aren't that strong. So when you think about this, it's how strong is the diaphragm in this context? Or, or, and it's not only diaphragm weakness as we have, but it's diaphragm dysfunction, right? Because we know diaphragm, uh, ventilator induced diaphragm dysfunction isn't just straight up muscle weakness, but it also has to do with significant dysfunction that happens. And the other bit is, do you have a diminished respiratory drive? Are they over sedated? Or if you do you have like ICU polymyelopathy with impaired neuro, neuromuscular function from that perspective. Um, just before I get to the thanks, I just wanted to also, you know, folks are might be uh, might be having a nap and who are uh, who are not interested in sort of the preclinical stuff. But one of the ways that I can tell you that this work has influenced my clinical work um, is that I really look at uh, particularly in the COVID patients now in this transpulmonary. Um, driving pressure perspective, and how do you keep the lungs open in these folks and be gentle with their lungs 
particularly as they wake up, right? Is that that's the one thing we know about how to recruit them and, and talk about them as they're deeply sedated. But the question then also becomes as they emerge with these inflamed lungs, how do we have them breathe carefully and uh, non-injuriously to their lungs? Because I've seen way more pneumomediastinums than I saw previously um, as people wake up and take, um, have a high drive to breathe that we may not have been otherwise managing or controlling. So I do, you've heard me say a little bit thanks to my, my, my team. Um, so um, I have a, I'm, I'm blessed with a fantastic uh, lab of folks, but uh, I've told you specifically about the work of Liz Rohr, Carl Fernandez, and Tiago Bassi, but Michelle and Marlena and Jessica have helped out a lot, and Suzette keeps us on the straight and narrow. Um, uh, the, we do do uh, research with a bunch of fantastic animal techs. Uh, the lung facer folks have been fantastic supporting this in my hospital, uh, TB vets, BC lung, my tax, and we've also heavily leaned on our respiratory therapists, uh, both, both Liz and Carl, our respiratory therapists who have gone back to to study and do their PhD with me in my lab. So um, thanks for having me. I think I think I put my email up. So I'm always happy to discuss stuff. Um, as a I'm a as a ventilator nerd, uh, I love talking about this stuff. Um, have tons of opinions and all the rest of it. So but happy always to discuss. That's my email there. Um, and I have tried, although I've talked quickly, I've tried very hard to make sure that there is time for people to ask questions. So Andrea, I'll stop sharing now. Uh, if you want, then I can always take it back over if people want to see specifics.